Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? As Savadali would say, it's a, it's a life gone wild. There's something permanent about Mr. Swan's brain. He turned out to have extraordinary ability. He saw dark figures, blue figures, with these energy rays coming out. Ingo was sitting very casually. You wouldn't even know that he was out of his body. The nighttime skies in Telluride were fabulously beautiful because there was no light, light degradation of, of the stars of the heavens. And it was cold and clear. You could see the Milky Way, you could see stars, everything. It was a wonderful black backdrop. My dad had just bought a new car. So I put my feet on the running board of the car. One foot goes to the ground. I'm going to put the next foot on the ground and suddenly I'm a billion miles out in space. And space is gorgeous. Then the other foot hits the ground and my eyes went down to the ground and I looked up to see what, what had happened, why the sky was like that. And it was all nice and black with sparkly stars in it and things like that. So that little event, which I never forgot, couldn't have lasted more than five seconds at the most. Puzzle is becoming a spider web of intrigue and adventure, but that's no different than how he lived his life. When he was practicing in the loft, he said sometimes he wouldn't really enter his body upside down. He's an artist, he's a writer, he explored into the remote viewing beyond what anybody else had, and that's why it's ego. I think of Ingo as a Leonardo da Vinci of our age. You may find it hard to believe that Swan could project himself to the surface of Mercury, but however you feel about it, he has been studied by a large number of scientists including a group at one of the world's leading think tanks, Stanford Research Institute. To show they're not fooling, they've even awarded him a diploma recognizing his services to science. 
It was here that Inga Swan's abilities were subjected to detailed examination, as were those of the controversial Yuri Geller. We had worked with him for almost half a year doing more or less conventional parapsychology experiments. As Swan is set up in a sealed room, Hal Puthoff throws Hello a dice again. and through random selection finds a number which will correspond to one of a file of target locations held in the laboratory. One, two, three, four. Seven's our number. These experiments must now pass the next scientific hurdle of being independently repeated in other laboratories. Hello, I'm Peter Ernest, former member of the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. I was there for much of the Cold War from the late 50s through 1995. And during that period, I served in what is called the clandestine service. Among those projects was something called remote viewing. In simple terms, that means the ability of a human being to see something at a far distance from where he or she is. One of the people featured in this effort by the agency was a gentleman by the name of Ingo Swan. He turned out to have extraordinary abilities in this regard, and so in witnessing the abilities of this gentleman in hearing his story, you are participating in an activity by the CIA to see whether an individual could indeed contribute to intelligence by his extraordinary ability to see things at a far, far greater distance than any of us. Ingo was sitting very casually. You wouldn't even know that he was out of his body in any way or another because he was smoking a very, very small cigar from time to time. He had his eyes closed, and he was talking in a normal, ordinary frame of voice, describing what it looked like on Mars, and trying to identify if there were any life forms on Mars. I cannot tell you what a dream come true it is to be able to host the masterpieces of Ingo Swan. Right in the center of our National Museum, we have this collection, as if it's part of the spine. Nothing could be more fitting. The people who listen within are the ones who come up and advance all of our, our lives. They are our evolutionaries, and Ingo was superb. Here is a remote viewer who worked for several decades for our government, prized for this gift of, of understanding, of remote uh, sensing, and what a perfect um, bridge to the public that comes to visit us to say that intuitive knowledge 
is real, authentic, truthful stuff and not fantasy. We were doing research with out-of-body experiences and Ingo said that he could see things at a distance based on the fact that we understood that we were spiritual beings who owned and operated bodies. We clicked right away. I said, what can I do for you? And he said, he needs more training situations because at that point he was on his bed going down on Fifth Avenue, picking out a store window to see if he could see what the display was and then later going to see if he was right. He said sometimes he would re-enter his body upside down. So I said, I can set up a perceptual test for you at a distance. So I said, now what I need is data. So I would like to see what your body is doing when you're at a distance seeing these things. So that's, that's what we did. When I was really quite small, I could see auras around people, especially the head and shoulders. And um, this is when I was really quite young. Remote viewing, that is the viewing of a remote location, remote in space, well shielded, no other information input uh, was how the remote viewing thing got started and uh, there were also experiments done remote viewing in time that is remote viewing future events remote viewing past events Ingo Swan was the lead psychic in the government Stargate program which was a uh, undercover program where psychics were asked to remote view into places like Russia to see if we could discern what was going on uh, and gain intelligence from those countries. I believe Ingo was the most documented remote viewer for the government and uh, much of his work is still classified. I don't think a computer network is ever going to do what a gifted human can do in terms of remote viewing, but what was very interesting at that point at SRI was that you had in the same laboratories, you had people who were developing computer networks that were going to annihilate space and time, as we know the World Wide Web today, and people who were looking at what consciousness could do to transcend space and time. As a physicist, space and time are inextricably intertwined, so it wasn't so surprising, but certainly in our everyday activities, the idea of seeing someone in the future or into the past at a remote location, no less, uh, certainly boggles the mind. Heat in the air, south gaseous planet, there's the ring, mountains are indicated, 
30,000 feet to having a tornado when I was there. So how came it said, you're the first to find a ring around Jupiter? I said, I am? Yeah. So eventually, an analysis was made of everything I said, and everything I said was correct. And I have to admit that even after 13 years of having founded the program and then directing it, still, on many occasions, I would go in to set up an experiment, and I'd ask myself, what am I doing here? This can't possibly work. No mechanism we can think of whereby this could, could possibly work. Uh, and it would work. Axelrod, would you like to see a UFO, Ingo? I said, oh, yeah. So we got in a mysterious aircraft and flew up to somewhere. When we got to this lake, <coughs> waiting for the UFO to appear, I said, how do you know one's going to appear? Because we know it. So, of course, I thought we'd see a nice disc <laughs> coming in from somewhere. But what happened instead was there's sort of a ball of energy that formed over the lake. It sent out purple lightning things. And it grew and grew and grew until a multicolored triangle. I think it was quite large. And it hovered the lake, hovered over the lake, and started sucking up the water. Now, I hadn't expected to see anything like that anywhere at any time. The way in which art works um, is about expressing aspects of the unconscious or um, really sort of making concrete what is unconscious, I would say. It's important to remember that this was an individual who was about 36, 39 years old at the time of the Stonewall riots, which, was in, which were in 1969. So he is somebody who grew up in a culture in which not everybody was as out as they are t today. And the whole gay freedom or gay li liberation movement was truly in its nascent stages. Psychic sexuality happens to be our most requested title in special collections ever. Was the work that he was making something that was um, reflective of what was being suppressed in his own world? Uh, were these really objects of desire? Was he really just looking at them to have fun? Um, but this was a whole different culture that was going on at the time. So he was of a generation which um, is not that dissimilar to people of the same age. There's something permanent about Mr. Swan's brain that has always been there. And it may be the nature of his preferences, the nature of the way his brain's organized, the fact he's an artist, we don't know. But we do know that if we imitate the pattern that his brain generates, and we've done this experimentally, I think the unfortunate part is that scientific journals simply don't want to hear it, is that if you duplicate what he does, the average person, while they're being that brain activity is being duplicated, can have very obvious remote viewing.
it's kind of fun to go sit at the High Line because Ingo knew Gloria Swanson, he knew some early movie stars, and he knew the Princess Shirazi. And quite often he would entertain them in his fourth floor and they would sit on these sofas. So when I go to the High Line and I see people sitting there with cups of coffee, I have to smile and think, do you even know that you're sitting with Gloria Swanson's set? <laughs> Ingo is difficult to put into words who he is. He's a, he's a gentle soul. Um, he thinks of himself, as I said before, as demanding and hard to get along with. And some people saw him as that, but I never did. And I, I saw him as a, as a friend, as a mentor, as a, as a colleague in this process. We worked through this process together. And um, that's who Ingo is to me. Those of us who are blessed enough to have our interactions with Ingo we're left with a clue. And now it is our journey to kind of put these clues into this puzzle. And this puzzle is becoming a spider web of intrigue and adventure, but that's no different than how he lived his life. He's an individual, he's a one of a kind. Um, he, you know, I hate to use the term Renaissance man, but he really is. I think of Ingo as a Leonardo da Vinci of our age. His greatest fear is to be alone. He has so many great abilities that he's far above most humans, and therefore he's almost without peers, and that's, I think that's hard on him because he's a very congenial person. I came, I did. Pretty soon I'm gonna go. And that's the end of the story. What the world does with anything is up to the world. released issue number two of the New Thinking Aloud quarterly magazine. You can download a free copy at the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website, newthinkingaloud.org.